I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media, the show for curious cooks and eaters. Here are some things that are probably not wrong to say about Persian food. It's a cuisine that loves acidity and earthiness, like combining concentrated pomegranate juice with walnuts or lime with caramelized parsley and dill. Yeah, caramelized parsley and dill, because Persian food also loves its herbs, a lot of them in every which way. And Persian cuisine is one of the great rice traditions of the world, including a seven-step technique for cooking rice that still involves a hope and a prayer that it comes out right in the end. But that's about all I can say, really, about Persian food. I have definitely got a lot to learn. But working on this show made me realize something. And that's, you know, there are some cuisines that have plenty of restaurants and chefs and ambassadors here in the U.S., but to learn about Persian food here, you really just kind of have to talk to Persian people. So we wanted to explore Persian food this hour by just talking to four Persian cooks. Samin Nosrat, Najmiye Batmanglich, Bezad Jamshidi, and Naz Deravian. One is an expert on Persian food, but another is a home cook. One is mostly a trained Italian cook, and the last mostly trained as a French one. But their stories and their flavors may surprise and move you. So let's get started. Last year, Naz Deravian came out with a terrific book called Bottom of the Pot. And if you know literally just one thing about Persian food, you probably know what that title is about. Rice. The crispy part of the rice, called tadig. And Naz writes about it so beautifully that we had to ask her in and ask why it matters so much. Naz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start from the top, very simply. What is tadig? Well, then we have to start from the bottom. Oh, Um, (laughs) touche. Tadig, quite literally, means bottom of the pot, tah being bottom, dig being pot. And it's probably the most coveted part of a Persian rice dish. It's the crispy, buttery, saffron-infused rice at the very bottom of the pot. It's typically made with rice, but it can be made with bread, potatoes. I have a fish tadig in my book, which is a crispy fish at the bottom of the pot. But huh. typically, it's it's that crispy rice, which is delicious. So, not every time someone talks to me about Persian food, I, I almost feel like you know, it's just a matter of seconds until they bring up tadig and then say, and you know that's <laughs> the best part. So, like, it's really a thing. Like, you know, we had the, the bottom of the pot rice in Chinese culture that I grew up in is a thing. Paella, you know, like the the sukarat is a thing. But I feel like tadig is really like an extra thing. It's an extra, extra, extra thing. <laughs> it's, you know, I think uh, <laughs> it, Persians, um, we like to think, and I think, correctly, that we have elevated um, rice making to an art form. And Mm. I say that in all seriousness, in that um, we really take our rice cooking seriously. Uh, Rice is the main grain at the Persian Mm -hmm. table, and it's this two-step process, method. First, you start with the rice itself. You want it to be a long grain, fragrant 
um, basmati-style rice. We can't get mm. um, Iranian rice imported here in the States at the moment, but um, yeah. basmati rice works just as well. And in this two-step method, so you first parboil the rice in plenty of salted water, and then you drain it as you kind of might um, making pasta. Uh, okay. So you want to drain it when it's al dente. So you want it to be soft on the outside, but still with a bite to it. Okay. And then... Once you drain it, you put enough oil or a combination of oil and butter, I like to use oil and butter, at the bottom of the pot, and you you start your tadig layer, which is that crispy um, rice at the bottom of the pot. And then you start the steaming method, which is the second step in preparing mm. the rice. So as you're crisping up the bottom layer, you're also steaming and cooking through the top layer. Now, when to drain the rice, how long to steam it for, those that's where the art comes in. And mm. you can develop this intuitively over time and trial and error. You know, Francis, no one turns out a perfect tadik every single time. Um, and if they say they do, <laughs> they're not being honest. <laughs> but even um, even if it burns, and I like, I mean, I would think that tadik was invented by accident. I think it most surely was. Um, sure. As this crispy rice probably was in most cultures. You know, at some point, someone burnt the bottom of the pot and realized it tastes really good. Um, yeah. So, and then it developed into this art form. But yes, for Iranians, for Persians, it, there's nothing else like it. And it's the first thing that goes at the table. And there's a yeah. fight over it. <laughs> <laughs> You have this really beautiful line in your book where you talk about flipping the pot and mm -hmm. hoping that the rice came out well and the tadig was properly made. And you say flipping is always a moment of hope. And mm. I have to say, like, as as a reader, as a writer myself, and also as an editor of cookbooks, like your book is so incredibly gorgeous and so incredibly beautifully written. That's a lot of adverbs. No one's going to trust my taste in literature because <laughs> I just used too many adverbs just now. But it's really, really lovely. And there's a beautiful story in the book about cooking rice. Would you mind reading it for us? Not at all. It'd be my pleasure. And thank you for all those adverbs. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the rice chapter, and it's called Jewels. Los Angeles, 2016. Maman, my mother, sits at her dedicated spot at our Los Angeles kitchen table. She speaks to me of Hafez, Khayyam, Rumi, and Saadi, the jewels of Persian literature, the weavers of truth, love, and light. I do my best to listen patiently to the stories I have heard countless times as I eye the tick-tock of the clock and consider dinner options. I remind myself that these days and these conversations are fleeting, I am fully aware of the preciousness of time. Time is insolent. It knows no do-overs. It is a dictator that can never be overthrown. As she breaks down a verse, titak tak titak tak I heave a 20-pound sack of rice off the pantry floor and watch as each grain clanks into the bowl. titak tak titak tak I rinse the rice a few times, washing off the starch, swirling it around with my finger, just as she taught me. Luna and Soleil, my daughters, my shadows, burst into the kitchen, abruptly breaking the rhythm of Chayam's rabayat. In a frenzy, they orbit around me and their grandmother. Spinning and spinning, they ask the inevitable question. What's for dinner? Chelo chorosh, 
Rice with stew, I respond. With tadig, they implore as they run out. Of course there will be tadig, their grandmother calls after them. No matter what, there will always be tadig. It's who we are. It's where we come from. I bring a pot of water to a boil as Maman slowly makes her way to the stove. Frail and ravaged knees now dictate her every move. But her focus is laser sharp and beamed on the rice pot. She's concerned I haven't added enough water and salt to the pot, reminding me that the rice needs plenty of room to stretch its legs, preparing itself for its grand pas de deux. And because it leaps around in there for a very short time, it's our only chance to salt it. A most familiar conversation. I add the rice to the well-salted water, and there we pause. Mother and daughter at the rice pot. Tradition, culture, and the meaning of life contained in this one critical moment. Exactly when to drain the rice. We take turns breaking a grain between our fingers and place a few more in our mouths. Each grain should soften on the outside, but still have a bite to it on the inside. Where only moments ago the poetry of Hafez and Sadi and the giggles and squeals of children reverberated, the house is now filled with silence. For a brief moment, time surrenders and stands still as we bite a single grain of rice. Now, now, turn it off, drain it, drain it, now, now. Maman's commands shatter the silence. I frantically search for the kitchen mitts because every second is critical and everything is critical. It's just a pot of rice, I want to remind us. It'll all be okay. But I don't, because it's more than a pot of rice. I gently nudge Maman out of the way and grab the pot. While the rice drains, I melt the butter and she sprinkles the saffron for color, for warmth, for sunrise and a sunset. She scatters some grains over the bottom of the pot, the tadig layer, as I add the rest and make small vent holes for the steam to escape. She covers the pot and turns up the heat. And once again, we both take our places at the rice pot. As soon as the steam slips out of the sides of the lid, Maman gives her finger a little lick and quickly taps the side of the pot. It sizzles, confirming that the tadig is setting, the rice is steaming, and the heat can be turned down. We wrap the lid in its shawl, a damconi, dish towel, to catch any condensation dripping back into the pot. Because every grain of rice should be separate, long, fluffy, and shine on its own. Each grain of rice, a jewel, scattered across the platter. When the rice is ready, Maman lifts the lid off the pot as Luna and Soleil find their way back inside. I set the platter next to Maman, but she moves aside and makes room for me. If it all goes as planned, the fruits of our labor will be met with high fives, high jumps, and quasi-cartwheels all around. If it all falls apart, quite literally, shoulders will slump and slight groans will replace the cheers. But everyone will do their best to make me feel better. Next time, they'll say. Because when it comes to Tadig, time is quite forgiving. As many do-overs as you please. After all, it's just a pot of rice. I place the serving dish over the pot. Inhale, hold my breath, tighten up my abs, chant a little mantra, and flip the pot over. A slight exhale slips out at the first sign of success, the swoosh sound of the rice dropping from pot to platter. Gently, I pull the pot up and away, and there she is, the bottom of the pot, 
Tadig. A golden sun burning bright in the embrace of a full moon. Crispy grains of rice encrusted in perfect formation. It's magic every time. I fully exhale as little hands reach in to break off pieces. I lift the platter and instinctively extend an arm out to Maman. She balances herself and gives her weight over to me. My other arm reaches for Luna and Soleil as the four of us and a platter of rice make the slow, short walk from stove to kitchen table. Mothers, daughters, and a pot of rice. It's who we are. It's where we come from. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Naz. Thank you. Naz Duravian's book is called Bottom of the Pot. You can find a recipe for steamed Persian rice with tadig at splendidtable.org. It's a terrific recipe. It's super detailed. But like she says, there's always a little bit of luck in getting it perfect. So, you know, just part of life, you know? And coming up, We'll talk with Samin Nosrat, not about salt, fat, acid, or heat, but about herbs. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. This is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters, and I'm Francis Lamb. We're talking to great Persian cooks today. But our next guest may honestly have spent more time cooking with pasta than pomegranates. You probably know Samin Nosrat from her fantastic book or Netflix show called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's only been, what, two years since she wrote that book? But it, I honestly think it's impossible to imagine the food world without her right now. She's literally shown millions of people how to see cooking in a new way through what she's learned mostly in French and Italian kitchens. But she's also the child of a Persian immigrant family. So we wanted to have her in to talk about the cooking she grew up with. Samin, it's so great to see you. Oh, Francis, thanks so much for having me. I have good news. What is it? The good news is we're not going to typecast you as the salt, fat, acid, heat lady today. thank you. (laughs) That's great news. The possibly bad news is we're going to typecast you in another way. Okay, cool. Because you happen to grow up with Persian food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a casual observer, I guess. One of the things I've always felt was so interesting about Persian food, and to me seemed like maybe a defining characteristic of Persian food, is the use of herbs. What do you feel is like the Persian cook's perspective on herbs? I think the definitive thing is that herbs are a main ingredient and not just a garnish in Mm. our cooking. And so they're the main thing that my mom shopped for when I was little, and there were entire, you know, she. it was like she had a mental map of which stores had which herbs. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that like, and they had herbs, you know, in nice bunches. Yeah. And I didn't really know this, but in Iran, herbs are not sold by the bunch. They're bought by the kilo. Oh, man. You know, which is like six bunches. <laughs> <laughs> 2. 2.21 pounds of dill. Yeah. And I remember that from the role herbs played in our home kitchen and the way mm. that... Every Iranian woman I know, it's always the women, um, is like, if only there wasn't this much chopping involved in Persian cooking. And the chopping (laughs) almost always is of herbs. Yeah. It's just mountains and mountains of it, of herbs of different kinds that get cooked down 
into into our food. And I think that's the other big thing is so one is the sheer amount of, of herbs used mm-hmm. and the other is the fact that most of the time they're cooked in mm-hmm. a way that in the West I feel like herbs are for, you know, chopping and sprinkling raw on top of your salad yeah, or you on top of your... Yeah, finish it with yeah. a chiffonade of basil. And exactly. And a teaspoon of basil for the exactly. whole platter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Tell me about cooking the herbs. Well, there are sort of two main ways that herbs are used in Persian cooking. So one is when we sit down to a meal, no matter what meal it is, there's always a big platter or basket of fresh herbs at the table. It's called sabzi khordan. Sabzi is the word for herbs and mm. sabz is the word for green. So it's just like green things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just okay. a big pile of green stuff. Yeah. So my mom always took great care in sort of coming home and washing the herbs. And then she always had them ready to go into one of two directions. It would either be on the table for the sabzi khordan mm-hmm. or more likely it would become something that she chopped and cooked into a stew or into the frittata that we call kuku sabzi mm. or into a soup. And sometimes even um, they would be folded into rice and then sort of steamed into the rice so you get these beautiful green rices. Oh, yeah. And the way that an herb transforms when you cook it is basically indescribable, you know? Mm. Um, it's it's something completely else. And so to me, when I sprinkle the chopped herbs on top of a dish, say, you know, like in Italian cooking when you might make gremolata, like of chopped parsley and lemon zest and garlic, and you put that on top of your risotto, it's to freshen it at the last moment, right? Right, 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 right? But when you take that same parsley and you sizzle it until it breaks down, it becomes something else. It gets mm. sweet and the fragrance totally changes. You know, raw spinach, when you eat raw spinach salad, it's sweet and delicate and very light. But yeah. when you cook spinach, the flavor becomes a lot richer. And the same thing happens when you sizzle herbs. So I've never thought to do that with herbs, in part because I have this understanding that herbs have, you know, their, their flavor is too delicate to be messed with or too strong in some cases that you want to overwhelm with the herbs. But when you cook them, the really high floral notes kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. But I, to me, I think what's funny about that is I was trained by Western cooks to think that that's the most special part of an herb is that delicacy and that lightness. And so it's sort of like an untraining of your mind to understand that these other flavors are also really valuable. I mean, I can't remember if you and I have talked about this or if I was talking about it with somebody else, but the other thing I really love is um, all of the parts of the herb we use in Iranian cooking and a lot of other cultures even use more parts like... um, in like a lot of Southeast Asian cuisines, they use the root, yeah. like cilantro, coriander, root, yeah, which yeah, has yeah. a really amazing taste. I remember when I was a little kid that I would go visit my grandparents on, on Saturdays. My grandma would always cook us a big Persian meal. Yeah. And her neighbors were Filipino. And so I'd be playing in my grandma's garden in the backyard while she got our lunch ready. And there was always these smells coming from the neighbor's house that I was like, what are those very strong smells? And I was like, I don't like it. It's too intense. And everyone in my family loved those smells. It was the smell of like coriander seeds and cumin seeds frying. And so all of these different cultures have come along and figured out these different ways of using the entire plant and all of the different parts of it in different ways to extract these different flavors. There's so much value in that. And I even think about in the sort of fancy kitchens where I came up, we never were to use the stems. It was only the leaves of things like Mm -hmm, parsley and mm -hmm, cilantro. mm -hmm. And then at some point I met somebody, I can't even remember who, who said, why would you throw away the cilantro stems? 
They were the sweetest, most flavorful part. So then I started tasting them. And it's incredible. The flavor, like the best flavor of cilantro comes not from the leaf, but from the stem. Mm. And so now I just always chop the whole bunch. And I mean, it's easier too. And so (laughs) to me, I mean, herbs define my cooking and they define the cooking of my childhood. And it's kind of like now my signature thing is I always just like add a handful of herbs on top of everything. So in your professional being, you were informed by people who said things like, well, no, the stems are not worth anything. But then when you were growing up, you were taught by your family who said, you know. We use the whole thing. We use the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So did you ever feel like what my family taught me was obviously wrong because it's not the great chef telling me that? Or- of course. Everyone does that, right? You, Everyone, A, first of all, no matter where you're from or who you are, you want to reject what your parents taught you at some <laughs> point <laughs> and believe that everyone else knows better. So, of course, I went through that. And, of course, I also went through shame, you know, thinking that, oh, our culture is not refined Mm. Our culture, you know, doesn't have this exquisite cuisine and and only, you know, this this French and Italian and Western European stuff that I'm learning at work has value. So yeah. <laughs> but I had to sort of unbrainwash myself out of that and come around to understanding of that, of course, like all cultures have value. All cuisines have value. And also pretty much all cuisines, except for perhaps the ones here in the U.S. have like centuries and even millennia of history. Right. And now I'm so proud of all of these different parts of me. And I feel like um, for a while I felt like I wasn't measuring up as a Western cook. For my whole life I felt like I don't measure up as an Iranian cook. Mm-hmm. I'm not as good as my mom or my grandma or when I try and make stuff. Like if I do make stuff, I'm, I'm like, oh, they would roll their eyes at this one. <laughs> I feel <laughs> or that way. Cooking raise Chinese an food. eyebrow. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> so and it's only in the last few years that I've come to a place where I feel like I understand, oh, I'm both of these things. I'm all of these things. Yeah. I am a Californian. I'm an Iranian. I'm a kid who has always loved to eat. I spent a lot of my time in Italy. And as a cook, probably more than anything else, I identify as an Italian cook. Sure. So everything that I've learned sort of has made me. And I'm I'm now finally like comfortable admitting who I am. Yeah. <laughs> Samin, it was great to have you in. Thanks so much for having me. It was so fun to be here. Samin Nosrat is the author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat on Netflix and also the author of the book of the same name. She gave us a recipe for Persian herb and cucumber yogurt. And we talked more, actually, about how she makes this super herby frittata called cuckoo sabzi. You can find that conversation and that recipe at SplendidTable.org. Okay, so remember when I said at the top of the show that one of our guests today is a bona fide expert in Persian food? That's Najmie Batmanguich. She was raised in Tehran but exiled after the revolution, and she started writing recipes for herself to help her remember the tastes of her old home. In 1986, she published a book called Food of Life, and every, and I mean literally every single Persian cook I know, has it and treasures it. In America, she's taught us about this cuisine for 35 years, but she's never returned to Iran until now. And she wrote a book about that called Cooking in Iran. We visited her in her beautiful art-filled home in Washington, D.C., and we sat at a table next to these two candle holders that were made out of pieces of her wedding chandelier that her sister smuggled out of Iran piece by piece in her pockets. She served glorious platters of meatballs and sweets and tea, and we got to talking. 
Okay, so we're sitting down to tea. Well, thank you for having us in your beautiful oh, home. Thank you. You said, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about the food of Iran and cooking in Iran, but before we do anything, we have to have sweets. And and beautiful tea. sweets, these beautiful floral sweets and tea. And you said, nothing of consequence happens without tea. Exactly. Now, tell me about that. Tell yes, me about the importance first, of tea. But, you know, it's very funny. Iranian were coffee drinker. Russian brought tea from China to Iran, to Iran, okay. to, Iran to Afghanistan, and then to Khorasan, which is north, uh, east of Iran. Actually, you know, that ancient Iranians were wine drinkers. I don't know, nobody perhaps believed that. And, you know, uh, when Islam came to Iran, wine became uh, forbidden, but not, wine never left the court. And to me, I think it's my interpretation, perhaps, all the quality for wine drinking ceremony went to tea drinking ceremony. Okay. That's why we serve tea in glass because the color of tea it should mm. be not very dark, not very light. It should be red ruby color, and then um, the temperature is very important. We don't Iranian they don't like cold tea at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the aroma. Yeah, is there a flower in this? Yes, exactly. I uh, sort of marinate my tea in orange blossom flower. So tea is very important, and there is a lot of ceremony goes behind it. In um, in one of the city in Iran, if you ask somebody's hand for marriage, the groom family go to bride's family. Uh, If they serve black tea, the answer is no. If they serve saffron tea, the answer is yes. So <laughs> tea has a very important role. It's a lot of, if they don't serve you tea when you go to somebody's house, that's a sign language that you're not welcome in you're that really house. You're not really welcome here. And that, another thing is interesting. When they serve you the third glass of tea, it's time to go. <laughs> so tea has a very important role in Iranian culture and every meal finishes with tea I, I want to talk a little bit about your origins you were born in Iran you grew up there yes steeped in the culture and steeped in the culinary culture and then you were exiled almost yes you know I know w- I I was born and raised in Tehran mm-hmm. I came from Tehran capital it's very cosmopolitan, 16 mm. million population. Very westernized. Hamburger, pizza. The, in, in, in Tehran, they serve you best Chinese food, Japanese food. Mm. All these uh, beautiful restaurants there. Yeah, so all melting pot or salad bowl, whatever you want to say. It. <laughs> so, and then I came to United States when I was 18. I went to university here. Mm-hmm. I always loved to cook. But my mother wouldn't allow me in the kitchen because she didn't go to university. She wants all her girls goes to university. And uh, after seven years, I returned to Iran. I handed my master's degree in education because I always wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. And then she allowed me in her kitchen. So I cook with my mother and I cook with my aunt. Actually, my aunt was excellent pastry chef. Yeah. And she never shared her secret to my mother. But when I returned to Iran, I was very humble to her. She decided to share. And uh, I've been cooking in this kitchen in, in America for about 40 years now. Yeah. But you recently went back to Iran, traveled, and cooked with people. Yes. What was it like going back? I felt I knew the language. I knew the culture. Uh, but I felt I was in exile, too, mm-hmm. because Iran has changed People has changed. Mm-hmm. They're living different layers of life. You know, they live under, under politically, the, you mean. politically. Yeah. And somehow 
all the door was open to me. When I went to Tajrish, the, the, the bazaar in northern Iran, they call Tajrish Bazaar, and I check all these foods and look at everything, the aroma. And I think um, I had this, my uh, iPhone, a Nike hat, and a scarf. One of the reasons I left Iran because they forced me to cover my head. Mm. I decided never cover my head because to me, Islam never said cover your head. They talk about hijab. Hijab means to be discreet. Mm. It doesn't mean you cover your head. It's not Iranian tradition at all. So scarf is a political thing. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not a religious thing. So I had a scarf and I had my Nike hat and I had my iPhone. I took a lot of pictures, interviewed a lot of people. Of course, I had my photographer too, which we, we went all over Iran. So let's talk about the cooking. And obviously, you're talking about a, 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 a huge country with tremendously yeah. different regional yeah. variations and That's different right. climates and you know, a, a exactly. diversity of, of land mass and climate. So like, there are lots of different regional cuisines. But can you speak in general about some of the dishes that really in your mind, exhibit the most important traits of Iranian cooking? I don't know Persian cooking very well at all, but when I think of it, I think of a lot of herbs. I think a lot of floral flavors, lots of flowers, as we see in this beautiful home of yours. I think of a lot of acidic ingredients. Tell us about some of those important flavors in the dishes that... Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Iran is sort of divided into several plateaus and separated by mountain, yeah. running from uh, west to east, north to south. And uh, we have Persian Gulf in the south. We have Caspian in the north. As a result, as you said, we have many regions which they have their own climate, mm-hmm. own vegetation, own ingredients, and the most important, they have their own food culture, mm-hmm. which that was fascinated me to see the difference between Persian Gulf and people around the Caspian. And everything, there was garlic in every dishes. Even they serve us baby garlic, raw baby garlic on the table. And then my host just peeled a baby garlic and offered me. It looked like, I, it tastes like a piece of almond, fresh almonds. Oh, wow. It was so lovely. They call it in Iran garlic flour. Mm-hmm. Or in Persian Gulf, their attitude towards date palms, their respect. They, they think date palm is like a person. They have mm. funeral for date palm. They think the local believe date palm fall in love with male because they have male and female. And they, they use dates in every single thing. And the sweet agent is, of course, date molasses, date juice. And one of my experiences was they cook the rice in date juice. Oh, wow. And the tadig, the golden crust of date rice, is so delicious. Is it sweet? It's sweet sweet and smoky, mm, crunchy. There were so many things I learned in this trip. I was so happy that I could go to every region and taste and smell and share the kitchen. Uh, yeah. I, my dream was that, and, and I fulfilled that dream. I'm so lucky. <laughs> yeah. It's like you get to start your life over again. You're right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Najmiye. You're welcome. Najmiye Batmanglitch's latest book is Cooking in Iran, and you can find her recipes for carrot and walnut halva and saffron almond cake at splendidtable.org. 
And coming up, Persian power ingredients, and chef Bezad Jamshidi makes us a classic herb stew from his mother's table. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM, the show for curious cooks and eaters. So a few months ago, a friend invited me to a dinner, a sort of pop-up at someone's house where a cook from a fancy French restaurant was going to, quote, do his own food. Now, I've been to a few of these things before, and to be completely honest, you know, sometimes it feels well-intentioned, but you kind of get the feeling of why this person doesn't have their own restaurant yet. You know what I mean? But Bezad Jamshidi's food was different. It wasn't him just running all the specials his chef never lets him put next to the truffles. It was this beautiful vision of Persian cooking. It turned out that by chance, when he was starting a new job at this very fancy New York French restaurant one day, he happened to meet Anthony Bourdain, who said to him, Hey kid, you don't need to cook this food. Like, French food has enough cooks. You need to cook the food from where you're from. And he took it to heart. Every dish Bezad made for us that night had a story behind it about love and loss. And no matter how new and chefy it looked on the plate, it all felt and tasted like something old and enduring. And we knew we just had to cook with him. So Chef Bezad, thank you so much for coming to my house. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. You trained as a chef in exquisite high-end French and Italian restaurants. So how did you learn to cook Persian food? Was it purely um, just watching your mom? Or? A bit of a, a bit of home influence and a bit of child labor. Um, <laughs> we, had a, we had a family restaurant um, growing up in Vancouver. And my aunt was uh, reserved away from the restaurant due to a car accident when I was mm-hmm. 10. And so me and my older cousin got into the kitchen. And by older, I mean by two years. He was just taller and had more facial hair. <laughs> so he like managed the front of the house. And I was trying to navigate this completely foreign world. Mm. and. I burnt almost everything for the first <laughs> couple of days. And one of the biggest things that I learned is like the, the quintessential ingredient outside of salt and time is patience hmm. and testing and failing and knowing there's a standard that I need to get to. Yeah. Definitely a lot of disappointed customers in the first couple of weeks that I worked there. <laughs> but it was the most humbling experience of my life, being able to really have my hands on something and you know, manifest these dishes that tasted like my mom's and tasted like my aunt's. Yeah. And that now is like my reference point. Yeah. No matter how beautiful or elaborate I try to make a dish, if it doesn't taste like my mom's hands had a part in it, yeah. it's not as authentic as it should be. That's awesome. So what are we making together today? We're making one of my mom's absolute favorite stews called Khali Um It's this fish stew uh, that's made with fenugreek, cilantro, uh, herbs and spices, and some chili. Uh, and it's specific to an area of Iran that my mom grew up in. Um, so I packed the fish in uh, salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the salt is just a mixture of uh, turmeric and a bit of uh, egg whites that come and make it mealy. Mm-hmm. should resemble like a uh, sand that you use to make a sand castle. Yeah. <laughs> and we basically pack that down on the sheet tray. We put the fish on top. Uh, in the center cavity, you can do sliced shallots, some limes, something aromatic to keep it bright. Mm-hmm. And then we take the residual salt and we pack it on top yeah. and make kind of like this mummy cast of salt around the fish. Yeah. And then that bakes it for about 25 minutes. Once that's cooked, we're going to pull it out. Uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll break the cask and, and take the meat, <laughs> off, uh, meat off the bones. So we've got the fish in the oven, and now we're going to prep the sauce. Now, traditionally, you would make the sauce way before the fish. I would let the sauce go for a couple hours, and yeah. right when I think uh, it's maybe like 20 minutes out, I would uh, pop the fish into the oven and have that be like my last step. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're gonna start off with some white onion. We're gonna saute this out in a tiny bit of olive oil. Okay. Um, we're looking to get some caramelization. So you'll see us cook onions for two hours at a time and it seems crazy, but it completely changes the, the dynamic of the dish. Yeah. So we're gonna let the onions grow a little bit. At the very beginning, I'm just gonna add a little pinch of salt. Um, that just helps uh, pull out some of the moisture from the onions and they stop them from burning. We're gonna add in garlic next. I think the most essential part, honestly, when you're building anything, is taking the, the essential steps to make sure that the onions are at the perfect spot before you take on your next step. Yeah. Taking the time to really build it. Um, our next part here, we're gonna add our spices. So I'm gonna add a little bit of uh, white pepper. Okay. Tiny bit of coriander seed. And these are not ground, you're adding these spices whole. I'm grabbing the spices whole. Typically, if you were to not want to blend the sauce, you can kind of grind these spices inside a mortar and pestle, okay. just so that they break down a little bit. Sure. But the texture and the mouthfeel, I think, is really nice for a stew like this. Yeah. It also shows how rustic this style of cooking is. We're gonna add a little bit of chili. Um, some cumin. Some cumin. My favorite chili is Aleppo. Aleppo I like that pepper, it has yeah. a little bit of tartness. It's very, very bright. Yeah. And we're also gonna add a little bit of turmeric. I mean, without fail, <laughs> almost every Iranian recipe has some form of turmeric inside it. Mm. Helps with digestion, because Persians eat a lot of rice. Yeah. So it's good to have turmeric in and out of every meal. Yeah. Um, so now this is really aromatic. We cook out our turmeric just to kill a little bit of the raw flavor. Mm -hmm. We're gonna add advia, the spice mixed with the cardamom and the rose petals. Um, and then we're gonna add um, these limes for a bit of tartness. These yeah. are brined and fermented Persian limes. Yeah. Uh, they're essentially picked off the tree, they're brined in salt water, and then they're left out in the sun to dry. Yeah. So they have this like really deep, musky, sour aroma and flavor. Yeah, and they're black. It looks like a nut. And they just kind of pulverize yeah. and add them right into the dish. Exactly. So our next part, we're gonna add our herbs. I think this is the most essential step. Um, so here we have um, cilantro, chive, uh, and scallion. On top of that, I'm gonna add some fenugreek. If you can get your hands on fresh fenugreek, which I know is incredibly difficult, dried fenugreek is great as well. Yeah, leaves, dried fenugreek leaves. Dried fenugreek yeah. leaves. Um, and a little goes a long way. Yeah. Um, too much of the fenugreek will make your stew quite bitter. And you can also expect your house to stink of this for, for a while. <laughs> it's pungent, it's floral, but it's almost sort of medicinal smelling. But like the kind of medicine like, I'm gonna live forever. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that really bothered me growing up was the smell of fenugreek in the house. And like mm. me and my brother would like commented on it consistently. I hated this dish as a kid. I didn't understand why my mom would take hours to just like perfume the house with this like astringent, bitter herb. Yeah. And I remember going up and going up to my mom and going, I don't understand why you make this one stew. The house smells <laughs> of fish, it smells of fenugreek. I go to school with my clothes smelling like this. The kids, kids think I'm weird. There's so many other more beautiful things with like cinnamon, which is yeah. more familiar. <laughs> but you choose to do this. And she goes, I left Iran with nothing. She, she flew Iran um, in 1979. Her and my dad had a really tragic time trying to find their way into North America. And she goes, when I cook, I get to be in my kitchen back home again. Yeah. And for a moment, I'm taken back to what it was like before war, before I had to flee, when I had both of my parents around, like a cook for them. And it really started to, to dawn on me the, the density behind what the, the action to cook actually is. You know, we can cook a meal and it's great and it's food. 
or we can put intention behind everything that we do. Yeah. And that's what I do now in New York. I cook her recipes and I miss her the most. So yeah. that I feel like I'm back in her kitchen. We're gonna add a uh, tamarind now. Um, we're gonna cook the tamarind out just for one minute, just to develop a little bit of the sugars. Yeah. So essentially you want a paste. It's gonna build the body of what the whole sauce is gonna be. Mm -hmm. So that's when you add your water, it'll help thicken it up. But this also speaks to the quantity of herbs used in Persian cooking that I don't really see, or I can't think of another cuisine that uses this many herbs. You cook it all the way down and whatever little fiber and pectin is in those herbs is all extracted over yeah. this like long, slow process of sauteing them. Yeah. We're gonna add our water. We're gonna bring this up to a simmer and we're just gonna let it go. We always say you should, everything tastes better when you let it sit overnight. Sure. So like we'll have it the first day and then by the third day, it's like something completely different. Okay, so because of the magic of radio, you have the sauce fully made, it's pureed, it's beautiful, it's the darkest green I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. It's like almost black, but yeah. you can see in the light that there's a green tinge to it. And we've unearthed the fish mummy. Unearthed. And it is beautiful, you can see it's cooked so, it's so tender. Snapper or bass is my favorite just because their fat content and their flavor is like, it's, it's epic for this type of stew. So the fish is off the bone. It's looking pretty. It's gonna go into the stew and get a lot prettier. Woo. But right when you lift that lid, I could smell all that cilantro. I could smell that fenugreek, that again, that like floral medicinal smell. So that's essentially our stew. I highly suggest making a, a delicious taddy or some form of uh, Persian polo, mm -hmm. uh, basmati or jasmine rice to have it with, fresh cilantro or coriander is an amazing garnish. We always love our tart, so we always have some form of lime at the table to always squeeze on last minute, but oh, interesting. this is, uh, yeah, your home smells like uh, mom's house right now. That's awesome. All right, let's have a taste. Awesome. Whoa. Tastes like mom's. Really? Yeah, it's, you grew up eating this. It tastes like mom's. I'm jealous. This is wild good. It's so concentrated yeah. and so earthy and musky. But then when you taste it, there's so much beautiful tartness. This is incredible. Well, thank you so much for taking me to your home. An absolute pleasure to, to bring it to you. You can find out more about Bezad Jamshidi and where he's cooking next at mooshnyc.com. That's M-O-O-S-H-N-Y-C.com. Find his recipe for khaliye mahi, or Persian spicy fish and herb stew, at splendidtable.org. So as you're learning about Persian food, you'll probably come across some of the power ingredients of that cuisine, like super flavor agents, like dried limes and pomegranate molasses. Well, America's Test Kitchen has been playing with these ingredients for years, and ATK's Christy Morrison told Sally Swift about some of their favorite ways to use them. Hey, Christy Morrison, welcome. Hi, Sally, thanks for having me. I wanna to talk to you today about a couple specific Persian ingredients that really can change your cooking, and one of them is pomegranate molasses. Mm. <laughs> it is simply sexy. It is absolutely sexy. It's like Michael Fassbender sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So tell us what it is and like, how do you guys like to use it? Well, it's really just a reduction of pomegranate juice. 
And what's so wonderful about it is that pomegranates aren't that sweet to begin with. It's mm-hmm. kind of more of a sweet, tart, sour flavor. So you can use it in a lot of different things. It's It reminds me a little bit of the intensity of like a, a reduced balsamic vinegar. Mm-hmm. It has that mm-hmm. unctuousness, but it's a little brighter and a little more sour. Uh, because it has that syrupy kind of stickiness to it, it's great to use as a glaze. We've done uh, glazed whole chickens, uh, like a glazed roasted chicken. We've done uh, glazed quail. We've also used it on uh, broiled eggplant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, we've done it in vinaigrettes. We have this great Egyptian barley salad that um, the dressing has pomegranate molasses and cinnamon and cumin, and it's just wonderful on on all of these bright ingredients. And what about on green things? Have you used it, I mean, besides a raw salad, do you have you ever roasted green vegetables or anything with it? We do, actually. We have a pan-roasted a Brussels sprout recipe that we toss with cumin and some pomegranate molasses and then uh, serve with pomegranate seeds or arils on top. And it's that just a really nice contrast. Yeah, it must be beautiful with those fresh pomegranate seeds on it. It looks very holiday-esque. <laughs> So so pomegranate molasses is, I mean, I see it more and more often, but I do live in a big city. Is there an option for people? Have you guys ever done something to try and approximate it for people who can't get their hands on it? We have, Sally, and it's really easy. I think the simplest version is just take like a couple cups of pomegranate juice and a little tiny bit of sugar, like half a teaspoon, maybe a pinch of salt, and bring it up to a simmer in a a wide skillet, like a 12-inch skillet. So you have lots of surface area. Bring it up to a boil and then reduce the heat and just simmer it until you've reduced it to about a third of a cup. So that that reduction will give you a really nice glazy consistency. And pomegranate juice is pretty much everywhere thanks to palm these days. Right, right. (laughs) Okay, the other thing I want to talk to you about, and I have to warn you, I am totally obsessed with (laughs) these Persian dried limes. Oh, yes, please. So tell me about those. Well, I I find them fascinating. They look kind of like walnuts. Um, Like nothing. They look like absolutely nothing. What am I doing with this? They are not pretty. Uh, They're more the size of key limes than the, the limes that we see in most American supermarkets. They've been brined or salted and usually dried out in the sun. So mm-hmm. they have that lime scent. Um, they have a little tiny bit of sweetness, definitely mm-hmm. sour going on, and then this funky fermented flavor. Mm-hmm. And I know you're with me on this. It sounds like a weird combination, but it works so well in a lot of different recipes. Well, in their light, they don't feel like anything. <laughs> I throw them, my, my favorite thing to do is I throw them in a pot of white beans, and you have to stab them a little bit to be mm-hmm. able to get the water in. It is unreal what they do to a pot of beans. I've done them with lentils, and I completely agree with you. It's hard to describe exactly what what it brings to the lentils, but I often think it's it's really hard to season lentils to make them taste really really flavorful. You have Mm -hmm. to add a lot of salt. And so the alternative is maybe to add some vinegar at the end of cooking. But Mm -hmm. if you throw a dried lime in while you're cooking the lentils, you have that acid worked in there and that kind of funkiness from the fermentation. And it just adds this punch of flavor that you're absolutely not expecting. And I love it. I love it too. How else have you used them? What am I missing? (laughs) (laughs) I think the you know, I think it's an ingredient kind of like bay leaves. 
where it adds this flavor that uh, you didn't know you were missing. Once mm-hmm. it's there, it's really great. So I think in stews or if you were doing, you know, I, I keep thinking about like roast pork that you were going to make carnitas or tacos yes. with. Oh, you know? that would be delicious. Yes. I think it would really add a brightness and and just sort of a, a an extra oomph of, of flavor that people would really love. And we can find these, I mean, you, these are you find in a Middle Eastern store or, or Persian store if you're lucky enough to have one around. Um, but you can order them online too. And they're light, so they're inexpensive shipping, I just want to <laughs> say, and they keep forever. <laughs> They they feel like ping pong balls, kind they of. Feel, that's exactly <laughs> what they feel like ping pong balls. That's right. And I always wonder about if you could steep it for tea. I've never gotten around to doing it, but I bet it would be delicious. I think people do use it for tea, and you can also find it in powdered form, which might also lend itself to making teas um, and making spice rubs for things. Yeah, so. now you're talking. That's a great <laughs> idea. That's great. These ingredients are beautiful. Thank you for walking us through. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Christy Morrison is the senior editor for Special Projects at America's Test Kitchen. You can find the recipe for DIY pomegranate molasses and pistachio baklava with cardamom and rose water at splendidtable.org. And that is our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. If I could offer you a glass of tea and a platter of herbs right now, I would. See you next week. Our show is produced by APM, American Public Media, and supported by you. Thanks to everyone who contributes and makes the show possible. We really can't do it without you. And to help support our show, go to SplendidTable.org. Our production team includes senior producer Jennifer Russell. Jenny Lubke is our editor and technical director. Erica Romero is our associate producer. Chip Walton is our digital producer. And Sally Swift is our managing producer. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media.